Let's now go to our passage for this morning. Uh, we'll be going into Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Uh, this morning we have the privilege of having Pastor David preach uh, for us. Pastor David is the pastor of our youth group students and our college students, faithfully serving our ministries, and he'll be delivering God's word for us. I'll be reading from the ESV. He went away from there, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick. And they healed them. Good morning. Sometimes I feel my whole life has been one big rejection. Not my own words. It's a quote from a historical celebrity, uh, Marilyn Monroe. And I'm sure um, even if we don't identify with that statement completely, to a certain extent, that all of us here, to a certain extent, uh, can share such experience, such sentiment of rejection. Now, there is someone who can actually qualify to identify with such quote very much completely, we would say, and that we would not um, deny that, and that is actually Jesus. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm David Kim. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege today to preach to you on Mark 6, verse 1 to 13. For the past few weeks, we've been going over the Gospel of Mark, seeing Mark's account for the good news uh, that the ultimate king came to save us, the king who restores, the, the king who heals. But in today's passage, we get to see this very king rejected. We see the rejection of the king. So as we see this, I'd like to uh, take us to three points. First, we see how Jesus was rejected in his hometown. And then second, we see how Jesus then prepares the disciples of their own rejections. 
Now, and then we'll end with the ultimate response of the king. So the rejection of Jesus, the rejection of the disciples, and the response of the king. So let's take uh, the first verse of chapter 6. The main lingering emotion here is amazement. If you remember the previous chapters and previous sermons, it's right after this amazing healing of the bleeding woman. And actually beyond just healing, the dead has been raised by Jesus, Jairus' daughter. We keep seeing this uh, unveiling of this amazing power and wisdom of this king who came. And people are keep asking, the audiences keep asking, who is this? What is going on? Where is this happening from? Um, this uplifted heart, we're actually following Jesus into this hometown in verse 1. And disciples follow him, and he actually does another teaching where it's actually met with quite different response. Jesus starts to preach and teach in the synagogue, and read with me verse 2. And many who heard him were astonished. They're rightly astonished by his power and his wisdom. There's no doubt about that. And they start to ask the right questions. They say, who is this? But they start asking this. Let me read that. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Now, those questions are valid. Good questions. But they do take wrong turn when they answer that because they say is not this the carpenter don't we know his mother like personally we know who that person is we know his sisters and brothers we literally know that they live right there he's this carpenter they think that they know all there is to know about this very king who has come to show such might and such wisdom they think they know based on his background based on his appearance in other words their knowledge and especially their confidence in their knowledge he's a nobody verse 3 and they took offense at him now the original language here uh, actually means to, to, to take offense at someone it means actually to cause to fall And so in this passive form of the grammar, it means to stumble or to be offended. Uh, This specific noun here has the sense of this temptation or a cause of offense. In other parts of the Bible, it's actually used to indicate this rock that people stumble upon. It causes people to fall. Jesus did that to him. They were offended by him. What they saw offended them. What they saw caused caused them to reject him. They surely saw the wisdom, surely saw the power in the teaching. They were astonished by it, but something stumbled them to see that very fact clearly. It was their preconception of Jesus that got in the way. They could not get past their own evaluation of what they took to be his modest credentials their doubtless confidence. I knew who he is. I know who he is. I know where he comes from. Therefore, I know all about this person. Therefore, I can disqualify him. Actually, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 will describe this very viewing as viewing Jesus according to flesh. In other words, 
according to the worldly perception. That's how we view Jesus, according to the wrong perception of value. That kind of wrong lens prevented them to see Jesus for who he truly was, the king. And they rejected him. We're so obsessed over appearance, aren't we? Just talking about the physique of everyone, anyone. While we're so willing to chant this, don't judge a book by its cover, we could definitely go with our lives just continuing simultaneously to discredit people by what we see. Not just the outward appearance, it's really the broader descriptions that we can ascribe a person, label them, and then to conclude that we know the true value of that person. Such confidence in such labeling. If we see someone that didn't graduate from high school, oh, that must be uh, a sign of not being so smart. Or someone being overweight must be lazy. The world really tempts us to view people, the world, the king, and to judge with such confidence. Now, sadly, the sad part is that this does not end with our view of strangers. It gets worse when, actu- when that actually happens with those we actually know or we think we know. In fact, it's worst it's if it's with the beloved ones, your family, your friend. That's what happened here to Jesus, his family, his hometown, who should have known him better. They really thought they knew him by the wrong credentials, what stumbled them to reject him. Are there times where we do this to Jesus? Have you ever viewed Jesus with the idea, that confidence that you know who he is, you know how he's like, and how that's so lowly, how that's so unattractive, and then that kind of allows you to reject him? Is there anything like that? To this, it's, Verse 6, Jesus marveled, shows his humanity. He was surprised. He, he was marveled. Nevertheless, he carries on. He went about among the villages teaching. So then now he turns to disciples with this experience. And then he provides some instructions. The second point, we see now the rejection of the disciples. Verse 7, we see the final start to fulfill the purpose of the calling of the disciples. Jesus said he called the disciples in the earlier chapters in order that this would happen, that they would be sent to share the gospel. Now today's passage is a monumental moment where this is finally starting to happen. And in this historical moment, Mark brings us to attention what kind of instruction Jesus gives them. That Jesus prepares the disciples for rejection. Of all the instructions he could give, do this this way or that way, or don't say this, don't do, don't show. He actually, read verse 8 with me, Jesus charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. These things um, are being listed here as this bread, this bag, extra money, extra tunic, all of these things represent the sense of materialistic security. 
He's saying that's not what's going to make this happen. That's not what's going to have to attract the people who receive the gospel. A commentator says, basically, Jesus is instructing the disciples to go on mission entirely dependent on the generosity of others for food and lodging. And this is an expression of extreme poverty. And this is how he puts it. They do not travel first class. They do not come like an invading army living off the land. The twelve come more humbly and must be totally dependent on God for their support. They are to go out as the poor to those who are also poor and hungry. This carries this also this carries the tone of urgency. Kind of an urgency, an immediacy of this task that we actually also see in the prophets. You actually heard Jesus referring him back to a prophet identity back when he was rejected at hometown. This carries on that tone, a prophetic tone, prophetic identity. Same when God called the prophets of the Israelites to call Israel to repentance where he tells them to go barefoot, no extra money, no extra stuff, just go and proclaim. And Jesus says, it's just like those prophets, just like me, you may get rejected. In fact, you may get rejected precisely because of how you look, precisely because of what you lack. People will see that. They may see that not necessarily because of the content of the message, not because of the insufficiency of the quality, the content of it, but because of the worldly perception they might view you with because you're not so extravagant. Nothing that brings the awe factor. Just a poor, hungry group of people delivering the message. And you can be rejected. He prepares disciples for that. Have you experienced something like that? Both ways, I think. Have you ever shared something that was uh, quality-wise, content-wise, it was really good. It was based on the gospel. It was a gospel truth, and yet it was turned down because of your disqualification, so to speak, the worldly perceptions, because you weren't good enough. Or the other way around, have you ever heard a true message of the gospel from someone else, but because of our eyes that were fixated on their outward appearance, have you rejected them ever for that? Have you ever disqualified based on what you see. Unfortunately, I have too often. That's where I was directly called to repentance here, where especially in my interactions with my children, because there are times when my pre-adolescent children can speak the harshest gospel truth to my life. There are times where God himself literally speaks through them to me and the sinner in me can swiftly disqualify the validity of the point by just thinking what do you know you're only a kid you don't even know how to take care of yourself you don't know what you're talking about that's the sinner in me to disqualify my children when especially when my kid courageously tells me that i am raising my voice unjustly unfairly or this is unfair the cry this is unfair of course of course there are times where it's fair, and it's really on them. But too often, where they bring some truth, and yet I am tempted 
That temptation is always there where I say the fault probably is yours, not mine. You probably caused it. The call to gentleness, the call to patience, the call to meekness that God directly tells me through his word, through others, and through my kids. Too often my heart tries to reject it by just looking at my kids, looking at someone else. It's tempting to see that and say, hey, that it speaks well, it's astonishing, it hurts, in the good way even, but you're not good enough, actually. And then the focus swiftly turns and say, okay, you know what, I could disregard this. Has that ever happened to you? This rejection of the message because of the procession of the vehicle instead of what's in there. When disciples are rejected, Jesus says, the instruction that he gives is actually a sobering reminder of a prophetic call, continues on with that prophetic identity. Verse 11, and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. To the original audience who was listening to this, including the disciples, they knew what this meant. This gesture of shaking the dust from their feet and leaving, that actually reminds us the image of a prophet, a prophetic warning. It's a warning that this is a pagan place and we're leaving this. We're dissociating them. We're the ones rejecting it. They are cut off from the kingdom of God if they fail to respond. It's a daunting reality that Jesus is speaking to us. That there is rejection for our rejection of him. That those who reject the call to put your trust in God, those will not receive the kingdom of God. Surely there is a wrong way to apply this instruction to our situation in our lives in a kind of a myopic methodology where we hear Jesus saying, this is the wrong way to hear it, okay? We hear Jesus saying, the moment anyone rejects you, the moment anyone rejects me, announce, condemn them right there and then. Declare your judgment on them and shake off your dust. Leave right there. That's not what he says. Because instead, Jesus says, when you leave, when you leave, when it is the time, right time for the disciples to leave after putting consciously enough time and effort to witness the gospel there is a time there is an appropriate time to do this nevertheless we do not want to we shall not ignore the very fact that there still is a real tone of judgment there is a rejection to our rejection of god this actually reminds the disciples that, and here's the encouraging tone, I believe that this really strongly speaks to us, that the spreading of the gospel, the expansion of God's kingdom, it's ultimately God's work. That needs to be reminded of us. That's the one that empowers us to do this, not because we get to make the final judgment call of who gets judged and who is saved. No, it's his decision. It's up to God, not up to the disciples. That's why there are times when it is appropriate to move on. There are times 
precisely because we know that the efficacy of the gospel is in the gospel itself. Besides, very importantly, there are other people who need to hear this. There are other people who need to hear this. But when we're so enticed with this idea of, I'm the one who's doing this, then we could, we could definitely get lingered in that moment and not leave the house, not shake the dust off of our feet. There is a time. So when people reject, when the king is rejected because of their worldly views on him or when they see a lack of extravagance in the vehicle of the gospel, Jesus says there will be judgment. Go back to verse 5. It said, and he could do no mighty work there. It's talking about how there is no healing. There is no restoration in the rejection of Christ. Of course, it does say he does nevertheless do some healing. That actually doesn't mean he goes around to those people, the very people who are rejecting him, and he says, you know what, just still receive it. it the commentator actually does point out that um, it's those who received him among that majority of that consensus where they were all rejecting Jesus, but those, there were few in there. But there is no healing, no restoration in the rejection of Christ. And in verse 11, Jesus says that there will be judgment on those who re reject the king. Those who reject the Son of God must be cut off from the kingdom of God. And to this grim, dark reality, there is an ultimate response of the king. This is definitely a response, his rejection. Rejection is necessary. That's just but there is an ultimate response that our king, the rejected king, brings into our lives. That's the third point. Let's go back to verse 3 in today's passage. Remember this part where I told you they took offense at him? This offense. Remember I, I told you about that original language meaning the cause to fall? So it could have that meaning of the past form of stumble, to, to be stumbled, to be offended. That specific noun here is actually... A cause of offense, that, here's an interesting label that this brings that later Mark himself recalls in Jesus' identification. In verse 12, he says, I am this rock that stumbles people. I am that rock that is rejected, the rock. The same word that rock that stumbles is used to identify himself in Romans 9.33. And First Peter, second, uh, First Peter, chapter, second chapter, uh, verse eight, in a quotation from Isaiah eight fourteen, a rock that will make them fall. And in First Corinthians, First Corinthians, chapter one, verse twenty three, the cross is actually the stumbling block, the stumbling rock. That's that rock. And Mark says later, he remembers Jesus saying, "I'm the rejected stone." He says that this rejected stone will now become the cornerstone. Jesus becomes the rejected one. He becomes the rejected stone on our behalf. We see at the end of this book in chapter 15 where this king is now at the lowest place on a piece of wood, a cross, rugged cross and he's rejected by the father worse actually abandoned by him where he got to cry out why have you forsaken me and 
Romans 9.33 reminds us, he became the stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, so that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Jesus is rejected on our behalf in order that we may receive him as our true king. So there are ways to respond to this, this very king. That's actually what Mark does in the gospel. There's only a few times where he literally says stuff that he wants us to believe. He actually describes the scene and he wants us to respond. He wants us to see that and have our own response. He leaves us at that. That's ours too. So how can we respond to this? Instead of seeing what to do, that direction, let's see what happened and then let's apply it in our lives. When the disciples said, repent. That was the thesis of their statement. Their thesis of their gospel expansion. They proclaimed the gospel. They called people to repentance. So let's repent of our ways, especially our ways of viewing people, the world, even Christ himself in such worldly view. Let's reject those things. Instead of rejecting the king, the former ways of perception. Instead of rejecting because he's so ordinary, let us now see the beauty in such ordinary means of grace. Let us no longer view life according to flesh. That's 2 Corinthians 5. That was what it said. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. In other words, according to the worldly point of view. Even Though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Now, because of the king who was rejected on our behalf and the king who enables us now through such stone, being the cornerstone in our lives, that was actually 2 Corinthians 5, the whole thing. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, died and was raised from now on. Therefore, this is where that instruction comes. We don't see people that way anymore. We don't see Christ that way anymore because, verse 17, it empowers us further. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Renew. We're renewed in him. So no need for such extravagant features to attract the audience. No need to seek that. We could just humbly witness the very king who received us. The work, recognizing that the work is his. The work of the gospel, the work of the kingdom expansion is the work of the king who was rejected, who was rejected on our own behalf. So the love of Christ controls us. In fact, verse 17, renew. So now we could receive him. We could recognize that is his kingdom that we're taking apart. That means we don't have to worry. We don't have to worry about becoming the most popular kid in high school so that you could bring him to our youth group. This means there's no worries if you aren't the smartest, successful valedictorian of your college to witness our King Jesus. There's no worries if you don't have an amazing conversion story, actually. 
No need for us to wait until we have enough money. If stability, no need to wait to get married, have kids, so any so-called achievements in life, we're only witnessing here now. No need to bring in anyone else but just witnessing the king himself. But also that prophetic identity kind of calls us with a sense of urgency precisely because of that. There's nothing to wait for. Go ahead and witness with what we have. Someone put it beautifully here. This going with the analogy of being a clay pod when we see ourselves, when we see other people, it seemed like, if we're clay pots, we seem like the cracked pots, imperfect. There are some cracks there, but it says, we may look like cracked pots, but the cracks allow the divine light within to shine through. Then one can see that the power belongs to God. So in conclusion, Jesus could have said, I feel my whole life has been one big rejection. There was all kind of qualification for that. And his life ended in death, in rejection. Lowest rejection. But he doesn't conclude his life to define his life that way, right? He defeated death. He now is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And he, just like how he did his ministry through such humble meek, ordinary means, he reaches out to us. He approaches every one of us with his word, touching our hearts humbly through the spirit, showing his love through his body of believers. So I used to struggle so much because I didn't have that burning bush story, the burning bush conversion story. Somehow that got to me where it kind of challenged me with the the quality, in fact, the validity of my conversion. Am I even saved? It was, I don't even remember that amazing moment that other people are talking about. Other people are boasting about. I don't have that. Do I not believe in Jesus? Not even this 180 degrees of lifestyle change, you know, in a wrong direction, I really thought, does that mean I gotta, do I have to sin more? to return back? Is that a better quality? And then Romans literally answered me, and should you do that? No, don't do that. So I was stuck there. No audible voice of Jesus, no vision. But how thankful am I now that he was so kind and patient to teach me so constantly that came to me through such ordinary ways, ordinary ordinary ways i am thankful that the good news came to me through his means of grace and how through such lowly rejected servant that the salvation i was given how through such humble work of our servant we have redemption so i'm really reassured every time we come here to worship when we hear the word of god there's a call to repentance accepting our humble king Every time we do CG, every time we do anything in the name of Jesus, the king calls us to repent of our old views and receive him so that now we see him better that way, so that now we see others that way. The rejected stone is now the cornerstone of our our lives, holding everything together securely where we could boldly live our lives as humble witnesses of such good news. Let's pray.
Let's have a brief moment to respond to God, um, especially meditating on the rejection that our Lord had to go through, had to face, and how on our own, on our behalf, that he chose to be rejected. And that rejected stone is now our cornerstone of our lives, very own center, the core of our lives, and how that expands to others. So can we reflect on that? Let's pray. king but we rejected you we turned you down because of our, our, our false eyes and yet you have pursued us and that you've become the rejected one on our behalf we thank you for not letting us go we thank you that now we could see that now we could repent turn away from those things and now we could turn to you enable us to see correctly Enable us to see for who you are and then give us that eyes to see others. Give us such humble strength, such confidence in the efficacy of your gospel expansion. Give us such confidence of your work in our lives and let us shine your light through our cracks. We thank you. In Christ's name we pray.